Hi, everyone. This is Alicia Halliday, and this is the ASF Weekly Science Podcast. This week, I want to talk about two new findings regarding two important issues. Those are wandering and sleep. We'll save sleep for later so people don't fall asleep earlier. I know that some people who listen to this podcast may not actually think that wandering is an issue. I've heard the term, quote unquote, all that wander are not lost. I've also heard that people say that when a child wanders away from their parent and drowns, they're probably being abused. Well, wandering is not just walking around aimlessly. It's bolting. Kids run with a purpose. They just don't know what they're running to or what they're doing. Running to an imaginary ice cream truck and falling in a lake is not the same as all that wander are not lost. Remember Alexander Supertramp in the book Into the Wild? He was considered a wanderer. But things didn't really even end up that well for him either. In any event, wandering, elopement, or what I call running like hell is an issue for people with autism. Wandering has really been more well characterized in older children and adolescents, but the study to explore early development, or SEED, has really given scientists the opportunity to understand it in toddlers. They found that children with ASD were significantly more likely to wander than children even classified as developmentally disabled or, of course, the general population. Within that autism diagnosis as a risk factor, there are also several other factors. They include very low developmental level measured by the Mullen, and this is a proxy for cognition. It also includes affective disorders, anxiety, attention problems, and oppositional problems. All these things were also specifically associated with wandering in people with autism. Now we know that not only is wandering more common among young children with ASD, but also those specifically with behavioral and developmental problems. It's not just knowing, though, that a problem exists. It's doing something about it. There have been lots of solutions proposed to wandering, including tracking devices, changes in the Amber Alert notifications. Another study was published last year. The Interactive Autism Network in that study asked families what worked for them in terms of wandering, and I wanted to share it with you. By the way, medications did nothing. Behavioral management was found to be effective and paid for by insurance, so that's good. But you know what also worked? Deadbolts, fences, and door latches, security cameras, and window bars. Those things are not covered by insurance, but they also work. There don't seem to be any easy solutions to wandering. But if scientists better understood the factors that affect wandering, hopefully it could be prevented in different age kids. Now, next to the other issue, sleep. This may not be deadly to physical health like wandering, but it can be deadly to sanity. Sleep is essential, important, and crucial. When someone in the family does not sleep, nobody sleeps. There have been some ties between ASD and lack of sleep. And in fact, lots of theories about why people with ASD don't sleep and what goes on. This includes taking longer to fall asleep and waking up multiple times during the night, and also waking up very, very early. Sleep deprivation can exacerbate the symptoms of ASD and intellectual disability, which may result in challenging daytime behaviors. There is a correlation between sleep problems and increased aggression, noncompliance, increased social skill deficits, and increase in emotional behaviors and deficits in daily life skills. Sleep deprivation has also been associated with aggression, anxiety, and depression, and even attention problems in younger kids with ASD. Also, insufficient sleep has a profound negative effect on daily activities and social inclusion for those affected. 
disrupted sleep patterns experienced by children with ASD and intellectual disability, and the subsequent negative impact on their families can really result in not just these behavioral issues, but a reduced quality of life for the entire family. They're also associated with increased parental stress, reduced parental sense of competence, and poor physical health for the entire family. I'm sure no one listening to this podcast disagrees with the fact scientists really need to better understand what goes on in sleep. Now, we do need to improve sleep, but behavioral interventions have been limited in their success. For example, a meta-analysis published last year suggested only minimal effectiveness on behavioral interventions for sleep. And we all know what these interventions are, but we all fail horribly at them. Some of these things are make sure you're in a quiet place. You're supposed to reinforce calming down before bedtime and not reinforcing behaviors that come before sleep time resistance. Don't reinforce your kid waking up to come into bed with you. Trust me, I don't always practice what I preach here. I'm not judging, I'm just reporting. Also, of course, avoid caffeine. Also, some suggestions have been to provide visual schedules so the child knows the routine every night and knows what to expect. Sometimes some medications people with ASD are on change sleep cycles, so maybe getting those on a different schedule. Avoiding naps. Honestly, Autism Speaks has a great guide to some of these behavioral interventions, and they're probably good ideas and fantastic resources to get started. By the way, every child should be doing this, but they do meaningfully impact sleep problems of kids with ASD. Not entirely, but they have shown to be helpful in some kids with ASD. There's a lot of variability in some of these behavioral measures because whether they were parental reports or actual what's called actiography, which is measures movement, it's those Fitbits. If you have a Fitbit, you know what I'm talking about. Frankly, I'm not totally convinced of the quality of the data, but someone's validated it. It doesn't get into different types of sleep or the brain waves of sleep. Those things are important and studied under something called polysonography. More in that in future studies, I hope. So actiography just really looks at movements during sleep and can look at different types of movements and whether or not they're just related to restlessness or actually waking up or other issues of sleep problems. I'm not saying behavioral interventions are bad, but don't necessarily expect them to be a cure-all. So what is recommended? Drugs. Sorry, yes, but drugs. The major outcomes in these studies can be grouped into how long does it take to fall asleep? How many times do people taking these drugs wake up during the night? And how long do they stay asleep at a time? Some of the drugs used have been things like Benadryl or diphenhydramine. In fact, there's only been one study, and while it helped, it also caused severe grogginess. There's also been a couple of studies using Ambien, which is a particular drug choice for myself, helping me fall asleep. Again, lots of side effects to these. Some kids with poor sleep also have iron levels. A new study looked at iron supplementation and found that it really didn't do anything. If your child has low iron levels, go ahead, get that taken care of. But don't expect iron supplements to help your child get to sleep. It just wouldn't work. But the one drug that's received the most study and reports is melatonin. This is actually the synthetic form of a hormone found in the human brain, which regulates circadian rhythms, which is when you should wake up and when you fall asleep. Melatonin is released by the pineal gland in the brain when it is about time to fall asleep. And brain research has showed that 
the pineal gland does not have as much melatonin as it should in people with ASD. So there's a legitimate reason to use melatonin. Plus, there are not that many side effects. It does work, and it's been used for people without autism for things like jet lag for years. As it turns out, melatonin is more effective in people with autism than it is in people without autism, but other neurodevelopmental disorders, and has, in fact, been studied the most. But so far, just for the short term. It isn't a drug that really needs to be taken for a few weeks to start working. So trials can look at its effectiveness after, say, a few days or after a few months of use. And the effects are significant. They seem to be greater in adolescents and adults than in children, so are there gaps in knowledge. And there's also huge variability, just like there is with anything else having to do with autism. Some studies have shown effects and some do not show effects. Sometimes statistically significant effects like decreasing sleep latency, from 60 minutes to 45 minutes, which is how long it takes them to fall asleep, may be somewhat helpful, but they don't really completely solve the problem. It still takes 45 minutes to get to someone to calm down. But if a kid goes from sleeping for 45 minutes to an hour before they wake up, it's an improvement, but does it really mean they're getting a full night's sleep? What happened to five hours anyway? Don't come at me, I know, kids need more than five hours of sleep, but talk to any parent, five hours would be a gift. So parents also worry about giving anything to their kids. They're worried about how it'll affect their growth. They'll worry about how they'll, if it'll still work over a period of not just a couple months, but a couple years. Will the melatonin in the short term lead to worse sleep outcomes in the long term? Well, at least one study has now addressed that. It's one of the randomized clinical trials for melatonin. The researchers actually extended the study by tracking kids longer than the original four months. They followed them up on treatment for one year and then two years, and then gave those in the melatonin group a chance to get off melatonin for a couple of weeks. So since this was a randomized control trial, there was a group that received melatonin for a couple of years and a group that received placebo for a couple of years. The investigators looked at what happened to sleep, growth, and puberty, as well as parental quality of life. A group of researchers led by Dr. Beth Mallow at Vanderbilt led the study. I know Dr. Mallow will sometimes listen to this podcast, so I hope I don't screw anything up. And Dr. Mallow, I'm seriously trying not to get into the weeds, but if I miss something critical, please let me know. They found that after two years on melatonin, and that dose was between 2 and 10 milligrams, it really hovered around 5, there were significant and consistent improvements in parental reports of sleep disturbances, which also led to increases in total sleep time. A WHO quality of life questionnaire indicated that there was a significant improvement in quality of life. Together, the data support the use for longer-term melatonin treatment around 5 milligrams. Please don't go to 100 milligrams and think the results are going to be the same for people with ASD. When those on melatonin were taken off melatonin and given that placebo time, the measures of sleep got worse, but they were still better than the placebo group, which was interesting. Adverse events were similar across the groups taking placebo and the melatonin. There were also no differences in height and weight growth between the groups. There was no delay in pubertal development like hair and genitalia development. People on the melatonin did have more headaches, so keep that in mind, but nobody seemed to have withdrawal symptoms of melatonin. So the good news is, is that melatonin is helpful, but it doesn't totally eliminate sleep issues in everyone. There's a lot of variability, is, as I mentioned, as there is across autism, so you can't really be that surprised. 
It seems safe and relatively inexpensive depending on where you get it. So it's worth at least trying. If it doesn't work even a little bit after a couple of months, eh, it probably didn't hurt either. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week.